0: Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and we know what the topic today is. The topic today is abortion rights and the Supreme Court's landmark decision in the Dobbs case. Joe, will you talk to us a little bit more about what we're going to discuss?
1: Yes, Jessica, you said the lead. We're not going to bury the lead today. There are some things in life where you know they're going to happen, but that doesn't lessen the sting when they do. Such is the case with today's Supreme Court decision to overturn the nearly 50 years of abortion rights enshrined in the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. We all knew this was coming, especially in the aftermath of that leak of the draft opinion from early May, just weeks ago. We knew this was coming, and now we know that it is reality. So let's discuss how we got here and the absolutely colossal implications that follow. So Jessica, my first question to you may be an obvious answer here, but what does this mean for abortion rights for women in the United States of America?
0: It means that they are no longer constitutionally protected. So there is, again, let's say it one more time, the federal constitution no longer protects the right to obtain an abortion. What does that mean? Practically, it means every state gets to decide for itself whether or not to provide abortion or to completely ban abortion. And we're already seeing that coming to fruition today, where blue states are rolling out plans, for instance, to provide more funding for abortion providers, even to do things like enshrine the right to obtain an abortion in state constitution. Red states are doing exactly the opposite.
1: Okay, I know we've talked about this a number of times on passing judgment. Jessica, you use the word patchwork, so it appears that it will be a patchwork of abortion rights on a state by state basis. But that kind of situation is far from settled. We live in California, by We I mean you and I, where the governor has openly stated that he wants to make California, for lack of a better phrase, an abortion sanctuary state that will provide safe harbor for women from other states to come to California to get an abortion and maybe going so far as to provide trans- transportation expenses and housing expenses while they are here. And it follows that other states will try to prevent that from happening. So what does this look like? How does this work now?
0: So what this looks like, as we just mentioned, is that states are going to dig in on both sides. So California becoming a sanctuary state, saying we know based on history that when neighboring states try and severely restrict the right to obtain an abortion. And now they'll be able, again, to completely ban it. We know there's an influx of women who do have the resources to travel to come to states that can provide abortions. So California is preparing in terms of funding, in terms of resources for that influx of women who will try and obtain abortions. And again, California is also planning, this will be on the ballot in November, to enshrine the right to obtain an abortion in our state constitution. Now, other states are trying not just to ban abortion, which I shouldn't say trying, they will ban abortion within their jurisdiction, but they're also going to try and reach outside their borders and prevent their residents from traveling to obtain an abortion. Some of what we're seeing in a reaction to that, states like California saying, we will not help any state That tries to punish you, any woman from coming into our state to obtain an abortion, we will not help that state. And in fact, we see states like Connecticut proposing things like saying, and you can counter sue. If you come into our state and you obtain an abortion and your home state tries to punish you for that, we're going to try and create a law that allows you to counter sue for damages. So we will absolutely see a big state by state battle here. One more thing I'll say legally, just because this is our podcast and it gives me a little bit more time than I've had on the TV and radio appearances today. I don't think that states do have the legal power to reach outside their boundaries and punish their residents for what they do in other potentially neighboring states. But I believe absolutely that this will be another legal challenge. It could wind its way up to the Supreme Court.
1: All right, a very complicated legal web indeed. Now, Jessica, 13 states have so-called trigger laws which are designed to go into effect in the event Roe was overturned, which happened today. Those states are Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. Sounds like a song from a musical. As of the time of this writing, trigger laws have taken effect already to ban abortions in three states, well, three states plus one, Louisiana, South Dakota, and Kentucky, which had those trigger laws, and also the state of Missouri, which acted very quickly to ban abortion today, the day that that federal protection was removed. Now, Jessica, we touched on this just a moment ago, or you did. Are there currently any associated state laws, existing laws, that would prevent women from traveling outside of their state to get an abortion if they live in one of these states right now?
0: Not currently, but again, I think there will be. And I'm glad that we're emphasizing this for a moment because... Let's focus on what this would mean. Let's say that, for instance, in California, we try and punish people from going to Arizona because we think in California that nobody should be able to wear polka dots on Wednesdays. But in Arizona, they let you wear polka dots on Wednesdays. So any resident that travels into Arizona, we're going to try and punish them. Now, I purposely used a preposterous example, but the point is we don't punish our residents for going outside of our boundaries into another state and doing things that we may not permit in this state. Now, I will say, and we don't have time to go into it in detail now, some people point to the Fugitive Slave Acts and the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 that's part of the Compromise of 1850 for the idea that, in fact, people can reach outside of state boundaries. I don't think that that provides the legal basis to allow states to do this. But again, we're going to see battles federal to state, state to federal, but also on this front, state versus state.
1: So a Pandora's box, indeed, Jessica. We talked in a recent episode about online prescriptions where abortion drugs, which is a very common way to induce an abortion these days, which is different from the more traditional methods that we've read about. With this new patchwork of state-by-state protections that we're discussing right now, and what will surely be long legal battles, which you're discussing. What does this situation look like right now?
0: I'm really glad that you brought up this issue of abortion pills because this does account for more than 50% of abortions in our country right now. Let's go into a little bit more detail. We know that during the pandemic, the FDA changed the regulation on these abortion pills and the FDA said you no longer need an in-person appointment in order to be prescribed abortion pills. What we're going to see now is enormous pressure on President Biden to order the FDA to lessen the restriction on these abortion pills even further to put it on more equal footing with other drugs, and to craft language to say that the federal government has a policy of making sure that these abortion pills can be provided. And what I'm specifically getting at, Joe, is the federal government is potentially going to have language that says, states, if you try and ban the mailing in of abortion pills, the prescription of abortion pills in your state, that will contravene federal law. And even more specifically, what I'm talking about is the idea that we have a supremacy clause in this country. And if there's a federal law, and there's a state law, and they conflict, we know what to do. And this would be called obstacle preemption, meaning that the federal government has a policy and the state law or the state regulation is trying to frustrate that policy. This will be a huge area, I think, of litigation. Many people believe, well, maybe the impact of this decision isn't so bad because we have the ability to obtain these abortion pills. But we are already seeing states very quickly move to try and ban that. Again, we all need to watch very carefully what courts say with respect to this matchup between the federal government saying you can obtain abortion pills and states trying to prevent people from doing that.
1: All right. back up just a little bit and get a more big picture view here. What about collateral damage with other rights other than abortion? We all know that once precedent is set, or in this particular case precedent is undone, it will have a ripple effect as legal reasoning is applied to other rights. So what about the rights for gay people to marry? Just a recent decision by the Supreme Court. What about the right for heterosexual couples to use contraception? What about laws like the Texas law that once banned sodomy? It wasn't that long ago that that was on the books. What about laws designed to allow people to openly discriminate against gay Americans? My mind is admittedly racing just thinking about the potential dominoes here.
0: I actually don't think it's racing too quickly, and this allows us to go a little bit deeper into the majority opinion first. So why does the court overturn Roe v. Wade? Why does the court say it's an egregiously wrong decision and then overturn the case that upholds Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey? Simply put, what the court is saying here is that there's nothing in the text of the Constitution that says there's a right to privacy or a right to obtain an abortion. Next, after we look at the text, what the court is saying here is that there's nothing in the history and tradition of our country, the deeply rooted history and tradition of our country, that would indicate that the right to obtain an abortion should be protected as an unenumerated, meaning unwritten, fundamental right. Now, The next thing that Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion, he goes to pains to say, this is just about abortion. It's not about, Joe, the other rights that you were asking about. He says it's not about same-sex marriage. This is about abortion because abortion is different. Abortion is about the potential of life and harming that potential. I'm, of course, paraphrasing the majority opinion here. But if you look at the rationale... Again, the court's rationale here is the right is not explicitly in the text of the Constitution and the right is not deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. If this conservative court takes that rationale and wants to go further, I absolutely believe that we do need to be very careful about watching the right of people to obtain contraception, the right of people to engage in intimate relationships, the right of people to marry the partner of their choosing. Maybe that partner is a partner of the same sex. One other thing to mention here, we have Justice Clarence Thomas writing his own concurrence, and he explicitly says this. He explicitly says, let's go further than abortion, and we should overturn all of those other rights, Joe, that you and I just talked about that are not written in the Constitution." So, again, I, I don't find a lot of comfort with Justice Alito's assurances here that this doesn't go beyond abortion.
1: Right. Harrowing words from Justice Thomas in terms of those rights. So, Jessica, let's talk mechanics for just a second. Can you please explain why Justice Alito was the one who wrote the opinion in this case? 213 pages, as I counted.
0: 213 pages, including the appendices, including the concurrence and the syllabus and the dissent. So... Chief Justice John Roberts, if he's in the majority, he gets to assign the opinion. And it seems to me that he clearly assigned this opinion to Justice Alito. Justice Alito, I will say, surprised me in the sense that the leaked opinion, when we talked about it, Joe, the language was really strong and aggressive and strident. And I said, incorrectly, I said, the punchline will be the same. Roe v. Wade will be overturned. The right to obtain an abortion will no longer be protected under the Constitution, but the language will soften. And I will say the language did not soften. Now, this kind of brings up the question, where was the chief justice? The chief justice actually wrote for himself saying, I think we could uphold Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion, but still protect Roe v. Wade as precedent. Now, one, I think intellectually that makes no sense. But it shows, Joe, that the chief justice has lost control of the court. This is no longer his court. As we've said before on this podcast, the conservative majority does not need him. They can make these really big decisions on their own.
1: OK, thank you for that, Jessica. We also know that this decision will disproportionately affect poor and minority women, in effect, digging the hole of poverty ever deeper under their dangling feet, are poor women not entitled to the same pursuit of liberty as a bunch of old white men and one elderly black man and one anti-abortion catholic woman?
0: Well, the question of course i i know is a rhetorical one in a sense, but i will say this decision really shows us how important elections are. And Joe, you and i have talked about this offline, but it also shows us if justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had either retired or had Uh, Passed away about eight weeks later. I don't think we have this decision today. And it shows us how much power these nine people have. And again, what's the most important thing on the Supreme Court? Most important thing is to be able to count to five. And the court was able to count to five today five votes to overturn Roe v. Wade, six votes to uphold Mississippi's ban, again, that 15 week ban on abortion. And When it comes to the federal constitution, the Supreme Court is the final word. And we are feeling so deeply the impact of who gets to appoint those Supreme Court justices.
1: Right. And that's a key word. These justices are appointed. They are not elected officials. They are appointed by our elected officials. And let's keep in mind, three of these justices, three of the justices who scuttled abortion rights just today were put into their positions by Donald Trump. And we also talked numerous times on our podcast about the legal and political chicanery that, at the time, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did to get at least one of those justices onto the court. So that is not lost on me. So Jessica, we don't yet know if the pair of hot button topic decisions from this week, one as I said on scuttling abortion rights and the other on increasing Second Amendment protections will have an effect on the midterms because they're coming up fast. Because, and I think it is important to mention this here, that a not insignificant percentage of Americans heard this news about Roe v. Wade for the first time today. They're not paying attention like we political and Supreme Court junkies are. Perhaps it will galvanize the Democratic electorate. Maybe it will motivate the Republicans to get out the vote. It is widely known that the opposition makes gains in Congress in midterm elections. So do you have any thoughts on this particular aspect or is it just too soon to tell?
0: Both. I have some thoughts and it's probably too soon to tell. So what we know is, as we've talked about, this is creating a patchwork of laws and a patchwork of laws such that there are blue states where a majority of the voters likely do support the right to obtain an abortion, but they will keep that right in a blue state. And so the question really is, how much will it motivate the Democrat voters in the blue states to turn out if they weren't going to turn out or the independents to vote Democrat if they weren't already going to do so. But the really big question is how much is this going to motivate the blue voters in the red states, the independent voters in the red states? I will say we're having this conversation at the end of June. This is a huge decision. It's hugely impactful. But when it comes to the ballot box in November, what will people be focused on? Will they be focused more on How much does it cost me to fill up my gas tank? How much does it cost me to go to the grocery store? Do I have to have an extra job in order to pay for all my expenses? We know that when the economy is bad, people tend to punish those in power. We also know the economy is controlled by a lot more things than our elected officials. But I'm not at all convinced that this means Democrats will keep the House or make gains in the Senate, I I don't think that we're there.
1: Okay, Jessica, before we get out of here, I'm going to sail us into some slightly murky waters because I can't help but think about another decision from this week, which we haven't even had time to discuss yet, involving gun rights, where a New York restriction on concealed carry and permits was struck down. The question is, and maybe this is a conflation of two things that just aren't related, maybe they are, how can there be federal protection for Second Amendment rights, but the states can decide for themselves on abortion. Not to be hyperbolic, Jessica, but it seems that as of today, guns have more rights than women do. So before we go, tied into this, I have sort of a listener question here. It was inspired by an already archaic recent tweet from Neil Catal. It was from yesterday morning. Catal is a law professor and former deputy solicitor general under former President Obama and one of your fellow MSNBC contributors. And he tweeted the following, quote, going to be very weird if the Supreme Court ends a constitutional right to obtain an abortion, saying it should be left to the states to decide, right after it just imposed a constitutional right to concealed carry of firearms, saying it cannot be left to the states to decide. So a friend of mine shared that on social media and he asked, help me make sense of this. So Jessica, is there any way to square these things? Is there any way to make sense of this? Or have I just got this whole thing in a muddle?
0: Well, yes. I mean, I think that the conservative majority of the court would say there absolutely is a way to square these two decisions. And what the court would say is the Second Amendment is different because it is written in the Constitution that there is a right to keep and bear arms. And all they're doing is interpreting what is already, in the court's mind, fairly clear text. Now, I think, again, what the conservative majority would say here is that that is different from the right to obtain an abortion, which is not written in the text of the Constitution. Instead, when it comes to the right to obtain an abortion, we're looking at that word liberty in the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause, and we're interpreting what the word liberty means. Going back a long way, the court has said liberty means the right to privacy. Liberty means the right to personal autonomy. Liberty means then eventually the right to obtain an abortion. So I believe the court would say, of course you can square these two things. We're talking about an enumerated, meaning listed right, the second amendment. And then we're talking about these rights that we created improperly that are unenumerated, these rights under this word liberty in the due process clause. Now, Having said that, is there a different way to look at these opinions and, in fact, say that they are inconsistent? I would say that there is. I would say in both cases, we're interpreting the Constitution. In both cases, we're really relying on the discretion of the majority of the court still to tell us what terms mean. But, Joe, to the listener question, we're so happy to get listener questions. I think that would be the response, that there is, in fact, a way to square those two things.
1: Well, Jessica, I think back to the Pledge of Allegiance from when I was in grade school and we ended it by saying, with liberty and justice for all. And all I could think of today is that the words liberty and justice and all as of today are in quotations. So, Jessica, there are millions of people out there who are celebrating this decision by the Supreme Court today, but there are also millions of people who feel very much the other way. For those people, the latter group, is there any other recourse? After all, Democrats, they still have the executive branch with Joe Biden in the White House, and for now, at least, they have majorities, slim ones, albeit in both the Senate and the House of Representatives. Is there any other fix for this?
0: Well, sure. I mean, Congress and Senate could have acted to create legislative protection for the right to obtain an abortion. We can't guarantee that this court would have upheld that. But absolutely, there could have been federal legislation, and there wasn't, and there won't be. And so what we're left with is trying to exert pressure on President Biden to frankly do something where he doesn't have a lot of room to try and maneuver here. I mean, people have said maybe there should be federal funding for women to travel to obtain abortions, federal funding for abortion providers. The problem there is we have the Hyde Amendment, which in general terms prevents federal funding for abortions. There's no easy solution by executive order. And again, I think the best hope when it comes to the federal government, is to try and make clear that abortion pills should be available in each state. But that's not a huge lessening of the consequence of this decision. It would be impactful. It would make a difference. But it's not like completely eradicating this decision.
1: Okay, Jessica, I know that it probably drives you up a wall when I ask you questions like this. But it's crystal ball time. Looking back at the history of abortion rights in America, it was legal from the founding of our country for decades, for many, many decades, and then became illegal. Then it became legal again in 1973. It was almost 50 years women could get abortions in the United States, protected by the Constitution. So we've seen it flip-flop back and forth many, many times in the last couple hundred years. So the question remains for those people who want to fight back and flip this around again, can this be undone? I don't know, decades down the road, is this another case that somehow winds its way to a different Supreme Court with a different majority?
0: Well, maybe. I think what I'll say is I've been asked a lot today, has the court ever reversed itself like this? And the answer is yes and no. So the court, of course, famously has reversed itself. And sometimes we celebrate those reversals. Let's think about Brown versus Board of Education overturning Plessy. Plessy, of course, upholding the doctrine of separate but equal and Brown versus Board of Education largely saying there's no place for that in our federal constitution. But I have never seen the court overturn itself and take away a right that has been protected under the Constitution for half a century. Now, could the court later on reverse itself? Sure, but that's a lot later on. And before we go, Joe, I also want to say that we talked about are there potential federal fixes? We also need to look to see if the composition of the House changes, composition of the Senate changes, and the Oval Office Will Republicans try and ban abortions on the federal level, meaning no state can allow abortions? I don't think that happens today or tomorrow, but it's something else that we need to be looking at.
1: So sweet dreams, Jessica. That's a lovely thing to think about at the end of our show today. Jessica, there will be more to discuss in the coming weeks. Uh, there are other Supreme Court decisions. We'll have a lot to sort out. Thank you for taking the time for doing this. And I know that you did a whole lot of media appearances today. You did what, 17, did you say?
0: I believe this is number 18. And I will say, it is really an honor to be asked for your opinion on a day like this. This is a really big day. And it's really an honor to be able to have a longer conversation with you, Joe. So I'm, I'm glad that we got to flesh this out together.
1: Yeah, me too. Thank you so very much for taking the time. So where can our friends and listeners read? I know you've been writing about this as well. Where can people find that and read it?
0: So I have written a bunch on MSNBC recently about this. And of course I'm gonna direct people to our podcast. Please rate, please review, please subscribe. Um, We love hearing from you. Please write in with questions.
1: One last time, Jessica, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Your expertise is invaluable. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok sometimes at LevinsonJessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at In Depth Day and also at joearmstrong.com slash Take action one way or another if you believe in something. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great day.